Acts 15, verses 1 through 35. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, 
to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. All right, that's a long passage, long story. How are we doing this morning? All right, it's good to see you. It's always good to be together with uh, our family of faith and uh, excited to stand up and tell you about a pivotal moment in history, in, in the history not just of Acts, but of the church. To be honest with you, Acts 15, we're halfway through. Those who've been with us the whole time are like, wait, we've been preaching Acts since, I think since Jesus came back and we're halfway through, or since Jesus came, he hadn't come back, what am I talking about? Uh, Since Jesus came and we're just halfway through, are you kidding me? Uh, But Acts 15 is the center of the book, both in terms of chapters, because there's 28 chapters, so 14 and then 15 picks up second half, and it is actually the center of the book of Acts theologically. What happens here is unbelievably important, and uh, uh, you can give thanks today and rejoice if you like bacon, that you could eat bacon and go to church at the same time because of Acts 15. Uh, and so I need to explain that to you. Uh, a lot of times you'll hear, I will hear people say things like this, you know, doctrine really divides. Uh, we, we need to not get so wrapped up in, in doctrine and, and our beliefs and just like preach Jesus but, but not, not get up in, in things that are controversial or really stand for certain doctrines because um, beliefs, you know, it's, it's, what's important is that you believe, that you have spirituality and that you believe and that doctrine does not really matter that much and that we should not be dividing over doctrine. Um, and I will tell you that on, in every phase of life, that is a really dangerous way of living and believing anything in the world. And I will give you an example. Multiple times a week, I exercise faith in something, but I really do believe that somewhere somebody needs to have the right doctrines. And it happens every time I go to the office and I cross the Allenton Bridge. You've been across that bridge? Okay, you go across that bridge, every time you cross that bridge, every time I cross that bridge, there's an act of faith going on. It's an act of faith in things that I know nothing of, but I am believing that somebody is making wise decisions that when I go across that bridge, there are engineers and architects and people who are still looking at that bridge and they know the understanding of, 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 of physics and, and uh, metallurgy and, and just the whole idea of how the thing works. I don't know much about it, but I do know that every time I cross that bridge, I'm putting faith both in the structure of the bridge and in the people who are telling me it's okay to cross. 
And I've talked to the mayor actually about this, and he told us that they almost shut the bridge down, and that the reason that they have made it one lane either way is because we're getting really close to it not being structurally sound. And you say, well, they'll tell us when, but you know what? There is a story when the, the people who were responsible for the care of a bridge, who were the people who knew what they were supposed to be doing, their doctrine of engineering, their doctrine of physics actually was wrong, and it was actually tragic. On uh, August 1st, 2007, at 6.05 p.m., uh, the I-35 westbound bridge, which was a very heavily traveled bridge in Minneapolis, and this was at the height of rush hour, so there were hundreds of cars on the bridge. At, at that time, August 1st at 6.05 p.m., the bridge literally just collapsed. Boom, gone. Like if you ever see the video, it's there and then it's not. And there's just a big cloud of dust and every car on it went down. Over a dozen people died. Over 140 people were injured, some of them with lifelong injuries. Uh, it was a terrible, terrible moment. And the question immediately came up, why did this happen? Now, what had gone on is thousands of people had placed their faith in that bridge every day thousands of people. And there were a couple hundred cars on the bridge at the time who were trusting in the, the bridge itself and in the people who were supposed to take care of the bridge. And what they found is that there was actually some people who denied some basic doctrines of physics and engineering. It, it started out with the, the people who designed the bridge many, many, many years before. Uh, who, who, who began to put certain things in place and very specifically, the, the engineers and the builders that built it believed that a half-inch steel gusset plate, now, how many of y'all know what that is? I've never heard of a steel gusset plate. Have y'all ever heard of, heard of a steel gusset plate? Well, it's the plate where all, if you look at a bridge that's got all the metal structures where all the pieces come together and they put a plate that holds it. They believed that a half-inch steel gusset plate was sufficient even though the industry standard was one inch. And that subsequently, other people looked at it and said, hmm, that's probably not enough, but it's all right, it's sufficient. There was also a doctrinal fail, a belief fail, when the engineers who were to inspect the bridge had come to it four years before, and on, it's like beam number 10 of that bridge, they noticed that that half-inch steel gusset plate had bent a little bit. And they went, we don't think that's a big deal. Fail number three in the doctrine of, of engineering metallurgy and all that kind of stuff happened that day as the uh, Minnesota Department of Transportation literally dumped uh, 262 tons of building materials and put uh, trucks and other things on that bridge literally right over uh, pier number 10 to fix it. And all those things, all of which, like the, the amount of weight they put made the weight that was being carried more than even the suggested weight for the bridge. All of those things, we had a whole bunch of people who ignored basic doctrines, basic ideas of physics, and it led to that plate collapsing, that thing, the, the pier driving up through it, and the whole bridge all at once collapsing. And so in that case, it did, like, your trust in a bridge, it did matter what people believed. 
Now, I'm setting all this up to say what we have here in Acts chapter 15, the center of the book, is a moment where the church is wrestling with its core beliefs. Doesn't matter what the church believes about the gospel and about Jesus, or is it just sufficient to get up and share some platitudes to make you feel good, to draw you in, to appeal to your emotions, to just tell you, just believe without creating clarity, without defining and defending certain things. And, and, and at this point in history, there is a major issue that arises because there are new people coming into the kingdom. See, up till this point in our Acts story, um, the church has been primarily located in Jerusalem and made up primarily of Jews. And so Jewish people uh, who become Christians already believe the Old Testament law. They all already understand the importance of circumcision. They already get the idea of the dietary laws of the Jewish faith. They are culturally religiously, historically Jewish. And so when they, when they become followers of Jesus, they just see Jesus as the completion of the Old Testament story, the Messiah that was promised, the hope that they've been waiting on. They believe that what all that Jesus has done is really bring completion to their Jewishness. But then in the story of Acts, Peter goes and preaches the gospel to this centurion, Roman centurion named Cornelius and his family believes in Christ without being circumcised and they receive the Holy Spirit. Then Paul, the apostle, goes on his first missionary journey and he goes all over modern day Turkey preaching Christ and planting churches. And as he does this, Gentiles are coming into the faith. They're coming into the kingdom. And, and what Peter is preaching, uh, what Paul is preaching to these people is that Christ is the fulfillment of all the hopes of the New Testament, but he is the good news to all people, that all people can be saved solely by turning from themselves and trusting in Jesus Christ. That's the message we have. It's the only message we preach. We want people to know that there is a Savior, he is sufficient, and Jesus is enough. But it is important that we have the right Jesus, the right understanding of who God is, and the right definition of how people are saved, or we can lead people astray. And so what's happened, what happens here and what has happened over his, throughout history are these moments where the culture surrounding the Christian church has put pressure on the church to, to try to define and understand some core beliefs. And in this situation, what really, what, what causes the moment is this massive influx of Gentile Christians who are not circumcised. Uh, and, and if you're not sure what that is, come talk to me later and we'll give an explanation. I won't draw any pictures, but we will give an explanation. Uh, but they have not taken on the covenant seal of being Jewish, nor are they doing anything with the Old Testament uh, law when it comes to things like their dietary laws and the things that they eat and the way that they carry themselves. And there are all kinds of things about their being Gentile that they are holding on to. And the question that really arises is this. When a person comes to faith in Jesus and they're a Gentile, do they need to trust in Jesus and become part of God's covenant community and become Jewish? Do they need to embrace Judaism? Now on one, one side of this argument are people who authentically are reading the Bible and they are trying to be careful to interpret the scriptures and make sure that, 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 that they don't give in to things that would cause people not to be holy and pure and righteous before the Lord. Yet, there is, like, literally think about yourself 
if, if the message we were preaching was, you must keep the whole Old Testament to be a Christian, it would become a massive barrier to people in that culture and a lot of other cultures. And so the tension between where do we remove the barriers to the gospel and where do we need to stand becomes a very real thing. Everybody who is in the, the tribe that is arguing for circumcision in this story has Bible verses to defend it. And, and, and everybody who is going to stand with what the church decides here has the other. And so there's this doctrinal issue this core question about the gospel that arises from this mission of taking the gospel to new types of people, and there's this moment where what they do is the whole church comes together, at least the leaders. Paul and Barnabas leave Antioch. Uh, after having an argument with people in Antioch over this, they come to Jerusalem. The, at Jerusalem, they gather all the apostles, all the elders, all the leaders of the church. We end up with, with three of the major people in the New Testament story with uh, Paul and Peter and this man named James who is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He grew up in the home of Mary and Joseph, rejected the gospel, but came to believe. Who were, like he is pivotal in the story. And they wrestle with the issue. They hear what the work of the Spirit is doing and they go to the scriptures and they figure out what is God saying and what is God doing. How do we rightly proclaim Christ in the gospel with this question? And then when they finish up, they give a decision, and that decision is sent out. Now, here's, there's a couple of reasons this is super important. For us today, it's super important. The first we'll get to around the issue they actually defended. And, and they give us clarity about what the gospel is with their decision. And that is so important for us. But the second thing is that this moment creates a model that has been followed all throughout church history when this happens. One of the things that I've come to realize in my, my, my understanding of God and the scriptures is that at any moment in history and in any culture, at any moment and in any culture, there are pressures that, that can lead the church to losing the gospel and the faith completely. There are theological issues that if you fail, you and I fail to believe those things, we really are no longer Christians. And when we fail to believe those things, um, we, we actually have abandoned the faith. And what happens is the, then we no longer have anything to offer a broken, hurting world that will make any difference at all. People will come in. We can, men, we can be entertaining. We can get people excited. We can play the music really loud. We can have smoke machines. We can have a huge church and lead people to a place where it offers them virtually nothing. In fact, there are a lot of churches who do really well doing nothing more than circling people right back into the belief systems of the world or the belief systems of legalism. We'll talk about that in a minute. And abandon Christianity altogether and people are amening and praising and, and, and huge, huge churches. And on the last day, those people who embrace the belief systems of those churches, who, who hook, line, and sinker believe the gospel they are preaching will stand before an eternal God, give account, and will be ushered into outer darkness because they failed to trust in Christ alone, the true Christ alone. What we believe matters and has eternal significance. And throughout church history, there's always pressure. 
There is some belief in the culture or some belief that arises from religious zealots within the church that puts pressure on what the church believes. And, and so, if, like, I'm a history nerd. I'm not doing a whole lot of church history outside of this this morning, but I will tell you that all through church history, there are these moments where what the church did is exactly what Acts 15. They came together, they debated, argued, and opened the Bible. And as they, they argued and opened the Bible, they created clarity around the essentials of the gospel and the essentials of Christian theology. And as they created clarity, they then had something to defend. They had something to stand on. And that thing that they ended up standing on becomes the core thing. So they are able to define what we believe and then defend what we believe as that pressure arises. In this case, the question is, do Gentile Christians have to become Jewish and embrace all the Old Testament story and laws and, and systems to be a Christian? But in other places, it's been questions about the nature of Jesus, who is he, the nature of God, and the whole idea of Trinity. Uh, in our, the last 50 years in America, let me tell you a couple that have happened here, and I'm not gonna go into detail, but, but these are real things. There was a, a massive challenge to the idea of miracles during the period where everybody was arguing about science. And they said, miracles don't exist. And so there were a ton of people who called themselves Christians who just stopped believing that anything miraculous in the Bible was believable. Well, guess what? That, that is a Jenga. You know, you ever play Jenga? We have a giant Jenga game. And in Jenga, there are a few things that you can pull it on the first try, but you pull the wrong Jenga piece and the whole thing falls down. Listen, if we stop believing in miraculous in the Bible, that's a Jenga piece. You pull it off, the whole thing falls. Right? You get it? There were people, I, I've, I've had conversations with these people who literally said, we don't believe in the miraculous, and therefore, the story of the resurrection is just a made-up fable. Boom! Falls down. It's all gone. Big churches believe in that here in St. Louis. We have had in the last 50 years a big challenge to the exclusivity of the gospel. Do you, it, it's cool to believe in Jesus, but don't stand up and say Jesus is the only way. Our culture is shouting that. And what happens is we try so hard to cater to and love our culture, but what happens when we can hear that and try to be gentle and loving, but if I accept that as a belief, it's a Jenga piece that the whole thing falls. There is no other way to redemption except through the blood of Christ and our faith in Jesus period. Okay, you, you get what I'm saying? Believe it or not, the last 20 or 30 years, the, the question is, what do we believe about sexuality and marriage? It's, it's obvious. You say, well, why is that? Because at the core, the question is, who are we as humans? And if I come to believe that what the Bible calls sin is not sin, what I'm really more doing is I am rejecting the basic idea of the sinfulness of, the hum of our humanity. What I'm saying is people are basically good, that real redemption is finding myself. And so what's happened in all these moments, it, like these Jenga pieces where they fall, the church and all three of those issues has come together and had moments in the last 50 years where evangelical leaders have come together and argued and wrestled and tried to find a compassionate way to articulate and stand on what is true. And while doing that, creating a letter, creating a, a, a document that affirms biblical truth, 
And all through history, we have these creeds and confessions. You may, like if you grew up in church, you may know of the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and, and you know, the, the, the you know, Westminster Confession of Faith and all these. These all came from moments where the church, leaders of a church, came, a group of churches came together and said, here's the pressure that's going on, and we are going to, to make sure we get our theology correct and then make sure we articulate it. Now, this is another reason it's important is because not every belief we hold is that important. Um, we believe that you baptize by immersion. It is not a Jenga piece that if I pull it out, the whole thing falls. I have Christian brothers and sisters who go to Presbyterian and Lutheran churches, Catholic churches. I love them to death, and they were baptized by, as infants by sprinkling. They hold to that. In our church, we believe you should be baptized by immersion. We encourage that. But I will link arms and love those brothers and sisters of Christ. People differ on, like, the nature of alcohol and where it fits in a Christian life or, or differ on, you know, the end time. There's all kinds of things that are not those type of Jenga pieces. And started, part of this is making sure we are putting in the closed-hand things that are closed-handed and keeping in the open-hand things that are open-handed. But this question in Acts 15 is a Jenga piece that if they get it wrong, the whole thing falls. And here we are in Acts 15 with this growing movement of the gospel going to the nations and a wrong decision at the Jerusalem Council changes church history. And I, I believe the Holy Spirit preserved what happens here. But if they go the wrong way and follow the wrong edict, the gospel itself would have been lost. And so this morning we're gonna talk a little bit about what happened and how this decision shaped the church in the world and is good news for you and me this morning. Because our beliefs matter because at the end of the rainbow of our doctrine is the only good news that can save an individual and change a world, right? At the end of that, the only good news that can save you and me and change our community and culture is found in our faith in Christ. And so what happens here is uh, that what we're going to look at is our four basic things that we can learn about defending, uh, defining and defending the gospel from this passage. Four basic, you know, uh, Parts, these are the movement of the story, but also what's going on here helps us understand the importance of this doctrinal issue, but also making sure that all of them we're careful with, okay? So, so here's the first thing. Uh, we see in this passage the challenge to the gospel. We see the challenge to the gospel. And like I said, at every point in time, every point in history, there are always challenges to the gospel that are unique for that moment in that culture. But in this moment, the question centers on the inclusion of the Gentiles. But what we'll find is the question gets way above that to the essential nature of the gospel itself. Look at verse 1 again. He says, he says um, that there are men who came down from Judea. These are people who left like Jerusalem in that area. Jewish Christians, we think. And Galatians were told that they came representing themselves as actually being sent by James. And that actually is affirmed a little bit later. Uh, they come in the James party. And they come to Antioch, this church place where there is now this huge multicultural church that has both Gentiles and Jews. And the Gentiles are loving Jesus, but they are eating bacon and not circumcised. And they show up and look at what they say. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses... Hear this in giant, bold letters. You cannot be saved. What they're saying is, unless you do the Jewish religious rites, you can't be saved. 
They're drawing a line of sand and saying, listen, it's great that you believed in Jesus, but you must add Jewishness to that. You must add Jewishness to that. These people are, are authentic. They're convictional. They do have Bible verses, but they also don't understand a lot about the overall story of the Bible and the work that God has been doing in the present, that moment, for them. And so watch this. If you're hanging with me, the pressure against the gospel, it's not only that there's always going to be pressure against the gospel, that pressure is always going to come from two angles. Church, people, Christians, leaders, elders, listen to me. The pressure against the gospel always comes from two directions. Direction one is that there are people who are authentic, but as they love, they're trying to love Jesus, they will become convictional about things that they may find in the Bible, but what they will do is they will take that convictional thing that they find in the Bible that, that they feel passionate about, and they will add that as a layer to what is necessary for faithfulness and for trust in Jesus. I, I saw a bumper sticker this week that said, real Christians vote Republican. And I'm telling you, that is heresy. That is a, that's the same thing that's happening here. Real Christians don't drink. Real Christians, you know, don't go to these places. I've been in situations where it almost was laughable. I've been in, like, got into a, a debate with deacons in one of the church I served about a pool table because real Christians don't play pool, okay? But there's always people around who go, wait a minute, wait a minute, I read the Bible and I see this and I, I feel like this is something that is for me, it's important for me, and I will affirm, hey, that's great. If the Lord is leading you that way, that is fabulous. You trust the Lord with us. But there are things in the Bible that may be for you, but that aren't universal for everybody who are in the, the family of faith. And, and we always have a verse. But all of a sudden, we, we start adding layers to the gospel, and we end up with a gospel that says, you are accepted on this basis. You're accepted because, first, you believe in Jesus. And. And the minute you insert the and, you've lost the gospel. Do you, do you hear me? The minute you insert the and, you're saved by Jesus but you almost must, always must do this. Now, you're gonna throw some things back at me and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know some things in the Bible that are very clear about this. And I believe that true faith in Jesus, there is repentance around things, but it is not my repentance and walking away that saves me. It is trusting in Jesus. It is my faith in Christ alone. A, a friend of mine who pastors a church not far from here, I read his book. He wrote, wrote a whole book that basically said that the reason America is falling away and is crashing to the ground is because you all go to lunch on Sunday. He wrote a book that says because you're going to lunch on Sunday, you are actually forcing people to work. Those waitresses and waiters are working, and because they're working, uh, and, and, and the only way that we are going to make America great and we're going to bring America back to God is if we remember the Sabbath. And I just like... I love this dude, but I want to laugh because the Sabbath is not Sunday. It's Saturday. He picked the wrong day if he's going to be faithful. At least the Seventh-day Adventists are consistent in this. Right? Now, they got it wrong too. 
Because you are not saved by being a Sabbatarian and Jesus. Okay? But the pressure from inside the church that says, man, to be faithful, to be true, but there are things we must do. And if we're not doing this, we're not really Christian. And you cannot be a Christian. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. But there is also pressure from without. The culture is always yelling at us saying, listen, to be acceptable, to, to, to make sense, you must kind of cave on these beliefs. And if you don't cave on these beliefs, then, then we're not going to listen to you, we're not going to accept you. That's going on all around us right now, but it's always there. And so, so while some in the church will move towards legalism, adding layers of Jesus, things to Jesus, other people will, will bring pressure against the church, desiring to be faithful witnesses and missionaries to the culture, but what they will start doing is they will start soft, trying to soften the edges of the things that are clear in Scripture so that it is more acceptable and understandable and, and palatable to our culture. So, so like I said, you end up with sciences disprove the miracles. And the Bible is just a human book and the exclusivity of Jesus. And, and listen to what Paul writes in Galatians chapter one. Here's what's interesting. If you're gonna, this is, I'm just gonna tell you this and I'm not going deep into it. If you want to have this week a companion devotional to the sermon, go read Galatians. And here's why. I'm a firm believer that what happens at the beginning of this text is that Paul has finished his first missionary journeys. Jewish and Gentile Christians have come together and these guys show up and verse two it says there was no small disagreement. That Paul and Barnabas get into a heated argument with these people who are coming into the church and some guy stands up in front of the church on Sunday morning and goes, Gentiles, we are so glad you believed, but we're gonna have a moil ready for you out here. And you can't really be a Christian unless you're saved. And now Paul and Barnabas are at the church in Antioch going, that guy's got to get off the stage. And they, they, there's a debate. Paul writes Galatians to the churches that are in the region he just went on this missionary journey to because they were already being influenced by this. And so the book of Galatians is in this moment, Paul writing, and listen to what he says. He is like crazy clear. Listen to what he says. I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Do you see the Jenga piece? A different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you the gospel, a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so now I say to you, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to this one that you received, let him be accursed. That word accursed is a Greek word. We get our word anathema. It literally means let him be condemned to hell. Get him away from you. There are different gospels. There are Jenga pieces. When you pull them out, they sound good, but the whole thing collapses. And Paul is addressing this very issue, saying, listen, if somebody adds something to the, to the pure belief in Jesus as the grounds for your redemption, run. Do not sit because they are great speakers and, and, and that they are entertaining and that they make you feel all warm and fuzzy. Run. Because the bridge is going to fall. It cannot hold you, right? And so, and so, so we see here the problem. Verse five, he says, um, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them 
and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Is it necessary to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved if you were a Gentile? And so what happens is the, the church in Antioch goes, this is a major problem. We got to get more than just Paul and Barnabas. They, they send him to Jerusalem on the way there. Paul and Barnabas pass through several towns. And what they're doing is they're announcing the beauty of Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus. And these towns are rejoicing of, of the work of, of the gospel and the spirit. But they get to Jerusalem and they begin to have this, this moment where this debate takes place. And so the second thing, we, we not only see the challenge to the gospel, but second, we see the church wrestling for the clarification of the gospel. You know, and the central question here that they're asking is, how is a person made right with God? How, how are you today? If you are here today, what is the basis of your being right with God? The theological term for this is called justification. Um, it's a word that's used in the Bible often. It's a word that's used in, in theology, justification. And justification is a legal term that says, I am guilty before the court. How could a guilty person ever stand in the presence of a holy, righteous God? What is the basis of our justification? And, and, and the church's, the, the scripture's answer, the answer they come up with here is that we are justified. We are made right with God purely on the basis of what Jesus did for us. That's it. Martin Luther said uh, something that, that, this is a quote from R.C. Sproul about something Luther said. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. That's a quote from Luther there. The article that is so important that he, Luther, said that if we lose it, we lose Christianity. If you don't have the doctrine of justification by faith alone, you don't have the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel, the church has no reason to exist. The church itself ceases to be the church, and it falls into apostasy because it is the article that answers the question, what must I do to be saved? Listen, that question is the central question every church should ask every Christian should ask, every person on this planet should be confronted with to wrestle with. What must I do to be saved? And the answer is repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it. And if I add anything to that, if I add anything to that, I have a problem. And so what happens is they, they have this amazing debate. We read it. I'm not going to go through and look at every, like there's, I can preach 10 sermons on this to show you the nuances. But what happens is, first of all, as they're arguing and debating, the first thing that happens is Peter stands up and says, listen, you know that the Lord chose me for some crazy reason. He chose me to be the first person to go to Gentiles. And this family believed, and I saw the Holy Spirit fall on them. They spoke in tongues. They, like what happened with them was, and none of them were circumcised. None of the men were circumcised. They had a giant plate of pulled pork on the table. <laughs> but the spirit worked. And then they, they, they have Paul and Barnabas tell the story of going from town to town and seeing the Holy Spirit change the lives of Gentiles. And now there are these new churches, these new outposts for the kingdom of God in every city, all over Rome or all over uh, modern day Turkey, where they had gone and they're made up of Jew and Gentile. And these, they're now a family of faith. And yes, the Jewish Christians are having some tension. How do we share a table with people who are not Jewish? It's, it's a hard but beautiful thing that they are wrestling with. But God had been faithful, and they testify, and the whole room goes silent. And then James, 
opens the Bible. <laughs> I love it. But if you read the text, he says, you know what the prophets have said. Now, now check this out. And then he quotes one prophet. He quotes from the book of Amos. But what he does, what, what Luke is doing is writing is he could write, okay, chapter, I could preach for seven weeks on this. Luke could have wrote a whole book on what happened in that moment. He condenses. So he just pulls one text that James referenced. But James is telling you what he's done is he goes through the prophets and he starts showing this theme. God's going to save the Gentiles. God's going to save the Gentiles. He's going to include the Gentiles of the family of faith. It's, it's, it's not something that was made up by Peter on the day that Cornelius came to faith. It is something that is a thread in the scriptures all the way back to Genesis 12 when God calls the father of their faith, Abraham, and God says to Abraham, by you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There is this massive thread in the Old Testament and the Jews were supposed to lift their chin and say, God has saved us for them. God has saved us for them. God has saved us for them. And by the first century, they said, God has saved us because those people are awful and we don't like them. And now when they're coming to faith, these Jewish people don't know what to do with that. But they skipped over a massive Old Testament theme of God's inclusion of the nations in his family. Right? And, and they didn't just go, hey, what's our experience? Man, we saw people saved. That's dangerous to get into a doctrinal debate and only talk about our experiences. It is James who opens the Bible and says, let's see what the text of Scripture says. The text of Scripture is clear. This was God's plan. And he makes clear, therefore, we can't add the weight of a law that we don't keep ourselves to these people. That's adding a requirement that will kill the gospel. Listen, you need to know this. The basic equation of the Christian faith is Jesus. Faith in Jesus alone is what saves us. If you add a plus sign in anything, Jesus plus anything equals hell. It equals hell. Jesus plus adherence to the religious law. Jesus plus you can't have tattoos. Jesus and you must have short hair. Jesus and you can't listen to rock and roll. Jesus, like anything you add there, you will lose the gospel because the grounds of you being right with God has nothing to do with you. Your performance has nothing to do with what makes you right before God. It is the performance of Jesus Christ and Jesus alone that makes us right with God. And so we preach Christ. There's, there's this amazing clip. I included it in my sermon notes so you can hear it from his mouth, this guy named Alistair Begg. And part of what's fun is that he's Scottish, so he's got this awesome accent. But he's talking about this idea, and he says, listen, when you were asked this question, he refers to what's called the Fort Lauderdale question. He's thinking about this, this evangelism explosion type of sharing the faith where people say, if you were to die tonight and you were to stand before God, what would you say? Now think about that. What would you say? And he says, if you answer in the first person, you are already walking down the path of getting it wrong. I, if you were to stand before Christ, what would you say? Well, I went to church. I believed. I got back. You see what he's saying? And he's saying, listen, we must understand that the only answer to that is 
What, like, if you were to die, what would you say? Let me tell you what he did for me. And so he takes us to the thief on the cross. I love this moment, this sermon. He takes us to the thief on the cross. And so here's this man who died next to Jesus. And, and, and here he is in that first moment. He walks into heaven and the angel meets him and goes, wait, wait, what are you doing here? Like you were just cursing Jesus on the cross. We watched it. We were kind of ticked. Why are you here? And the guy's like, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. Wait, wait, I got to go get... I got to go get a, a, a supervisor to have this conversation. So the supervising angel comes and talks to him and says, hey, what are you doing here? Why are you here? And I don't know. Well, do you understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone? He's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. When were you baptized? I don't know. It never happened. What is Baptism. Why are you here? The answer, because the man on the middle cross told me I could come. That's it. That's the gospel. The man on the middle cross said you could come. And, And we, in our own beliefs, we have to preach that gospel. I have to preach that gospel to myself all the time. I'm always defaulting to religious performance. The man on the middle cross bid me come. That's our offer to people. And anything I add to it. But, but the story is kind of weird because they defend that. They said, listen, we're not going to add any barrier to this. But at the end, there's these weird things that they say, yet there's some things we need to tell Gentiles they must do. Look at it, verse 19. This is James speaking. He says, therefore, my judgment is this, that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. That is a weird list. Like, you're not going to find that list anywhere else in the Bible except a little bit in Deuteronomy, but I don't think that's what's going on here. Why would they include this in the list? Remember I said there's always two pressures. There's pressure from people who want to add tears to the gospel out here, but there's also pressure from cultural issues out here. What's going on when, when, when Paul and Barnabas and these people are going from town to town and they're preaching the gospel and they're preaching to Gentiles, they're preaching to people in cities where every city has a temple to a, one of the pantheon of the Greco-Roman gods. And these people are all just as part of their culture involved in the religious celebration, heritage, and festivals that go in those temples. And those temples, these involve sacrifices that turned into great feasts that turned into orgies. Okay, just so you know, that's what happens. Every city has a temple, and what's happening is they're celebrating with, with these religious feasts that start with sacrifices and turn into all kinds of sexual activity that is in the city around the worship of the god or goddess of that city. It's what's going on. And so what, what are they saying to these, these Gentile Christians? They're saying, listen, you do not have to become Jewish to be saved. Jesus plus anything equals hell. Yet, you cannot add Jesus to anything else either. You, you can't take your spirituality. You are leaving your paganism and your spiritual pursuits and your spiritual activities and the things that you've placed your faith, you must leave those and come to Jesus. 
And, and for some of us, there is a danger. Like most of us who grew up religious, most of us who grew up religious, the danger for you is you read the Bible and you want to add some things to what it means to be an authentic Christian. But for a lot of us in here, we, we, we were saved and, and came out of the culture where we were actually involved in all kinds of spiritual practices. And, and there's all kinds, like our culture now is super, super, super spiritual. And what we want to do is we want to take spiritual practices that are actually part of the worship of the gods of our culture. And we want to baptize them and fit them into the way of doing Jesus. And that is just as dangerous. And there's clarity here. You, you have to leave that. You are now part of a new faith community. Search the scripture. Find the spirituality of the gospel. Do that. And that's what's argued here. And, and so there's this moment in this text that is actually amazing. And, and, and I want to show you this. Uh, this is the, 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 really the crux of what I'm trying to, to share with you this morning. Look down at verses 10 and 11. Because when Peter is speaking, he says something that is actually crazy. Look at it. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Now, here's, here's what he says. He says to the people who are saying they must be circumcised and all this, he's saying, listen, we don't even keep those laws. Our whole story as a nation is our failure to do what God asked us to do. In fact, our whole story is proof that we needed a Savior. Now, watch this. Here's what you expect Peter to say next. Here's what you accept. Brothers, we need to realize that they are saved just like we are. They're, they're, they're saved just like, like we are. Look at what he says. Verse 10 and 11. Now, therefore, you were putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as they will. It's not, he does not save, say they're going to be saved like we were. What he says is, here's what we believe. The only way for us to be saved is to get saved like they were. We have to shed off our trust in our Jewish heritage and religion. We have to shed off all of our beliefs in this and trust only in Jesus. Their faith is so simple. All they know is Jesus. And they're trusting in him. That's the way anybody from our culture is going to be saved. And so there is this beautiful clarification that, that the path is only through Jesus Christ. It is only by trusting in him. You cannot add anything to Jesus, but you cannot add Jesus to anything. It is our faith in the true Jesus, the son of God who came and gave himself up for us. That is the grounds of our redemption. The man on the middle cross has invited you to come. And so what they do is they write a letter. The third thing we see is the centrality of the gospel. They write a letter to make sure that the church knows that the gospel is the central message and that the community of faith stands on the gospel and that's it. That Jews, you need to go eat with your Gentile friends and don't worry about like, their heritage. Gentiles, be careful about what you serve. Please do not serve a whole bunch of sacrificed meals to your friends in your house who are Jewish, because they're going to have a hard time with that. Let's figure out how to make the gospel central and rally around that and not bring things that, that will create dissension and disagreement and, and, and wedges. But let's center on the gospel both as the basis of our community and the message we go with. And so that, that's what the letter does. And finally, there's a celebration of the gospel starting in verse 31. Uh, Paul and Barnabas with two guys from the Jerusalem church show up in Antioch and they read the letter 
And there is great celebration in the church because this is what they were hoping for, that the gospel is Christ alone. And now they know what the message they are preaching, it has been affirmed, and they're excited about it. Listen, that, that's the message of the gospel. We have one message here. You come here week after week, and sometimes I, I get up here in front, and I'm like, I'm saying the same thing. How are people going to be engaged and entertained when I'm just saying the same thing week after week? But listen, we got one message. That message is the man in the middle cross has told you you can come. That Christ has come and died for your sins. That, that he is our path to redemption. That when we trust in him, there are changes that will take place. But our performance is not the basis of our acceptance. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. And we beg you to believe in him. That those of you who know Christ, that you place your faith and trust in him and continue to, to preach the gospel to yourself and to hold on to the core essential truths that lead us to the gospel. And for those of you who don't know Jesus yet, that our invitation today is believe in him. He is enough. He is there for you. Christ has died and risen, and our hope is in that good news and nothing else. And so you're like, but, but I'm a hot mess. Good. Jesus saves hot messes. But you don't know what I've done in my life. Good, because Jesus saves those people. What do I have to do? Believe. Turn from yourself, turn from your idols, and trust in Jesus. And, and here in just a minute, we're going to have some people over here. If you're here today and you're hurting, you're struggling, no matter what your struggle is, you just need prayer. There's an open invitation for you to just come pray. I know there's people in, our, in the room today who just prayer with somebody would be a blessing. And we always have people ready to pray with you. And if you are here today and, and you are ready to at least have a conversation about what it means to trust in Jesus, we want you to do that. Like, we want to have a conversation and tell you what it means to trust, to just believe and trust in him, all right? That's our, that's our hope and our message, and that's what Acts 15. Acts 15 gave them, they defined the gospel. Now Paul will go for the rest of Acts and preach that gospel everywhere he goes. And it gave them something to defend and stand on. And like I said, church history has done this. And so we're going to close with something a little different this morning. The band's going to come on up here and, and get, get ready. I want, I'm going to fill for just a second while they get in place. But we're going to recite something together. Because what we believe does matter. There are things that when you pull it, the gospel falls. And the most succinct version of the essential Christian beliefs is, is a creed called the Apostles' Creed that wasn't probably written by the apostles, but the early, early, early church put this together, penned this as a way to articulate, and in a lot of churches, week after week, week, recite the core essentials that bind us together, the cores of the Christian faith. And so as I close my time this morning, I'm gonna ask you to stand I'm going to get us going, but my closing, our closing prayer this morning, I want us together as the Church of Jesus Christ to recite the Apostles' Creed as an affirmation of the faith we believe and the only faith that can, that can save us. And, and, and the faith is once for all delivered to the saints. So, so uh, I'll get us going, but we're reading this, so read it as a declaration together. I believe in God, the Father, 